We are in uh, Luke chapter 15. As we get started, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you, God, as always, every week as we gather together as brothers and sisters, because we are your children. We are grateful for the opportunity to worship together and to love one another and to declare that you are our God and our King. It is a glorious gift and one that I never want to take for granted. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be with us, among us, work in us and through us, please. To the glory of the Son, to the glory of the Father, that you would um, be powerfully present with us this morning. Help us to be faithful in the hearing and the preaching of your word today, in Jesus' name, amen. So we are starting a new series, our um, Advent series, because today is the first Sunday of Advent. Honestly, how many of you knew that today was the first Sunday of Advent? Hey, that's, that's not bad. Like, usually in Baptist churches, people are like, what's Advent? Um, but it's a, it's a thing. And so um, you know, the celebration is we prepare for the coming of Jesus. And, um, and so in the, celebrating the incarnation and the birth of Jesus, it is this incredible time of, of preparation. And so we want to do that um, this year by looking at our extravagant king and this extravagant kingdom. And so... Um, we, we just want to be mindful over the next few weeks as we build towards Christmas that we, we do not uh, worship a stingy God. We do not worship a God who holds back his affections or is reserved. We don't worship a God who holds um, back his blessings or minimizes inheritance. But rather the scriptures are full of declaring a God who consistently and extravagantly goes over the top. And when I think about the extravagance of God on display, when we talk about the, setting the stage today about the extravagance of, extravagance of God, one of my first thoughts is the parable of the prodigal son. And so that's what we're going to be looking at in Luke chapter 15. If you have your Bible, you can follow along starting in verse 11. Jesus is sitting, by the way, with tax collectors and with sinners, and this is one of the times where he's accused, and um, the, the Pharisees and the religious people are saying, hey, don't you understand, like, why does, your, why does your rabbi, why does this Jesus hang out with sinners? And the response of Jesus is he tells three parables. He tells the parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, and then the prodigal son. And he said, in verse 11, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. 
But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So what I want to do here is I want to point out the extravagance of God through, through three acts we see in this parable from the Father. And then I want to look at our response to this extravagance on display in the older brother. So the first thing about this parable that we see, just to give you a little bit of background here, if you're not familiar with the story, I know many of you um, have probably grown up in the church and have heard this story, but I also know that for several of you, many of you maybe even in here, you're not really familiar with it. Or if you're like me, you grew up in the church, and um, but a church that maybe didn't teach the Bible a whole lot, and so like I had kind of the Swiss cheese version of the Bible. So there were some stories I like got and I I knew because I happened to be there in Sunday school when they talked about that and then other ones that just were just completely uh, strange to me. And so one thing that just needs to be understood is what's happening here is that when the son goes to the father and asks for his inheritance, he's basically saying to his father, you're dead to me. I want your money. Like your money, your, my inheritance from you is more valuable than my relationship with you. It's pretty harsh, but that's what's going on. And so the father grants it and gives him his, his inheritance. And then the son goes and he squanders it all. He just blows it all on reckless living, on shameful living. And so then he decides while he is kind of at rock bottom and he realizes I'm wishing that I could eat the food that they're feeding to pigs. Like that would be good if I could eat some of this. And he realizes all of a sudden, man, how far I've fallen. And so he devises this plan to go back to the father and say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. But if I could be your servant, that would be so much better. And so he goes back, and, and the father, while seeing him a long way off, sees him and, and runs. And so that's the first thing. The first thing we see of extravagance here in this parable is the father runs. And that shows how he approaches us in our sin. So if the father, the son declares the father dead and he declares he wants no inheritance, he just wants his inheritance from him. We have to understand, we have to put ourselves in the place of the younger son there and understand that this is what our rebellion against God is. Not what it could be hypothetically, but what it is. Our situation is that we, since the garden, have wanted the kingdom without the king. We've wanted the kingdom and all the things about it, all the things the Bible talks about, the promised land or the kingdom, we want that, only we want it where we get to be in charge, where we are king. It is Adam and Eve looking at the garden and saying, love the garden, 
but I can do better. And the father's response is he runs. If you don't know, this was not done by respectable men. As Jesus is telling this story, there would have been a gasp at that. There would have been just a really uncomfortable um, response to that. I mean, if you've ever, like, you got to think that a, a wealthy man in that time would not have ever shamed himself in such a way, would not have embarrassed himself as to run, but especially because he's wearing like a robe. And let's just say that robes are not designed for running. Like, you, you wouldn't wear a robe in a basketball game. He's probably wearing a robe. I don't know if I've made that clear, but just a robe, okay? So, like, you hear the, the, the whole phrase of gird up your loins for battle? His loins are ungirded, okay? And he runs. He runs to the sun, embarrassingly. Like, I don't care if you can imagine the worst your parents have ever embarrassed you dropping you off at school or off at a friend's house or coming in to get you or anything like that. My kids would have stories. I'm sure that you all do too. It is nothing compared to this. It is shameful. Now think about this for a second. If the son's returning, who should the shame have been on in that situation? The son. Everybody knows what he's done. Everybody knows that he declared his father dead and he ran off and squandered everything. He comes back groveling. The shame should have been solely on the son as he comes back groveling and begging to be reconciled, at least brought in as a slave. Everyone should have been looking at him. And instead, the father runs and now all the shame is put onto him. Don't miss what's happening there. The attention has moved to the Father. The shame has moved to the Father. What the Father has done now is take all that on in such a way that no one's looking at the Son anymore. We see this as the author of Hebrews talks about looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus takes the shame, not only the penalty on the cross, but the shame. Everyone should have been looking at our sin, and yet on the cross, he takes that shame. Whatever shame you and I have, whatever shame you have in your sin, he took it. It's on him. And for what reason? For the joy that was set before him. It's because of his extravagant love. Ephesians 2 that we looked at last week said, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You get that? So that in the coming ages, he did all of this, taking the shame on himself because of the great love with which he loved us. He does that so he can show the immeasurable riches, so he can show the extravagance of his kindness and his love toward us in Christ Jesus. And so he runs. 
He doesn't hold back. He doesn't wait to see if you apologize first. He isn't weighing out the words that the son says. He knows you. He knows your heart. And you have come home and he's embraced you. Look, it's, it's one thing to love, but it, he takes on the shame for us. It's one thing to accept him back, but he doesn't just accept him back. He does so forsaking all of his dignity and it's really uncomfortable. And we see an example of this in John 13. We see the account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet at the Last Supper. And when Jesus gets around to Peter, Peter says, no way. I'm not going to go into all the details, but washing someone's feet was the lowest of servants' jobs. And so Jesus going around and washing his disciples' feet would have been incredibly uncomfortable to all of them, especially at this point. This is at the end of his ministry. And Peter can't handle it. It's too uncomfortable. It's too embarrassing. And I wonder, did Jesus think in that moment, seriously, this is the point that makes you uncomfortable? For Jesus, washing our feet, I mean, you think about what he has done. Think about the loss of dignity for Jesus when he comes to earth. The creator of all things comes to earth, submits himself to his creation as a baby. Like, gets his diaper changed receives instruction from earthly parents that he created. You think it's hard to listen to your parents. And then he lives a life of poverty, though he is the source of all riches. And then he bears the shame and he endures the cross. He doesn't die with dignity. Like, think about all the movies that we love about heroes. Like, if a hero's going to die, then they die with dignity. But Jesus does not. He dies covered with our shame. Because he loves us. And that's extravagant. And by the way, that's how we should approach others then. If this is how he has loved us, then that is how we are called to love others. We should welcome people like this. All I want to do is just give you a second here. Think about someone who has wronged you in that kind of way. Think of someone with whom right now there is no reconciliation. And then imagine seeing that person. And running to them. And embracing them. Most of the time, we rehearse all the things we would say if we, got, if we could get face-to-face, all the things that we think would prove that we were right or about how we were hurt. But uncomfortably, our Father does not do that with us. And as he has loved us, we are to love others if we believe that that is who he is. It's extravagant. The second thing is that he puts a robe on him. This extravagant gift that demonstrates who the younger son is and then by extension who we are. 
In verse 22, he says, But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And what's happening here is this symbolism that people would have understood there because they would have been calling to account um, Isaiah 61, where he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The best robes are the righteousness of God. Nothing held back. The father dresses him. What he's doing here is he's dressing him as his son. As the son is telling him, I have sinned against you and against heaven, like just welcome me back as a slave. The father is making a a critical declaration here by saying, bring me the best robes. He's saying, you're my son. You will dress like my son. Full restoration, no second class status. And not only the best robes, but there's an urgency about it. Look, he says, bring quickly the best robe. Like right now. He's declaring him reconciled immediately. He dresses him as his son immediately. Like he doesn't just greet him with enthusiasm. I'm so glad that you came back. Like let's work through our issues. He restores him. Through no work of his son, he's restored to his place. Think about that for a second. You and I have rebelled against the father. claimed that you know better, know of a better kingdom, a better place than with him. We have declared to him, we would rather have your gifts than you. And he forgives. And he wipes the slate clean. And if that's the case, would you not expect to have to prove yourself Would you not expect to have to make something good with the second chance and to to prove to him that you are worthy of this second chance? Instead, he says, quickly grab the best robe and put it on him because he is my son right now. See, when Jesus dies on the cross, we are forgiven and our slate is wiped clean. But it's deeper than that. A transaction takes place Our sin is exchanged for his righteousness. Our rags of sin are exchanged for the best robes of righteousness. And it happens now. And it's also super uncomfortable. In Luke 5, when Jesus is calling Peter and some of the disciples, he he teaches from Peter's boat to people on shore, and at the end of it, he turns to Peter and he tells him to cast his net down and to drop it into the water, and Peter's like, look, we've done this all night, like, we're not catching anything, and Jesus tells him to do it, and he ends up pulling up this catch that is bigger than he could possibly handle, and the response of Peter is not about the fish. It says, when Simon Peter saw it, He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Once Peter realizes what Jesus has done and what that means about who Jesus is, he looks at him, he says, Don't look at me. Don't look at me. I am covered with shame. I am a sinful man. 
Well, guess what? He's looking at you. He's looking at you with compassion and with incredible love and mercy, and he is reconciling you to himself. As John puts it, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And the rest of our lives is spent walking in faith that we are who he says we are. Think about this. Remember when you came to faith in Jesus. It may have been decades ago. It may have been months ago. It may have been days ago. And maybe it's still to come this morning. But if you think about that time, when you came to faith, when you turned from your sin, when you died to yourself and you lived to Christ, he declared you his son, his daughter, fully restored right now. And even if you have lived 50 years of faithfulness to him, following him, trying to obey him, walking in the light, you are no more of a son or a daughter now than you were when he first ran to meet you. The only thing that's changed is by the grace of God, you better understand what it means to be a son or a daughter. And by the grace of God and through sanctification, you may be more affirmed in that. But his posture towards you has not changed one bit. It's extravagant. And what would it look like to live a life immune to the lies of the enemy who likes to tell you like mm, God's probably not God's probably far from you right now yeah you used to believe all this stuff but then you went and did all these other things and so you you're not going to be welcomed back you have way too much to make up for imagine what it would be like to be immune to that and to realize that my standing with God is because of him not because of me And the enemy will turn you inward and make you think that it is because of you, that your standing with God is because of you. But it is not. Our eyes are moved to Jesus. And so if you want that, then you can return to him. Whether Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, well, I prayed a prayer when I was six or seven, but my whole life has not looked like this at all. Then return to him. Come home. He has taken your shame. He has taken your sin. He is offering you the best robes of righteousness right now and offering you a better life of walking in that identity that I am who he says that I am. It's an extravagant gift, an extravagant declaration. And the third thing that he does to show his extravagance is he throws a party, which describes how he feels about the whole thing. Right? So in verse 23, it says, Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Like it's one thing to not have to earn your place back. 
Like it's one thing to be accepted back and for him to say, you are my son, I, you know, I'm restoring you fully. But then can we just have a little, can we like save some shred of dignity and not call a whole bunch of attention to the whole thing? Like, can I just kind of slip back in? Can I just kind of go back to my bedroom, like my old room, and sit there on my bed and just have some peace and quiet? No, we're celebrating. We're having a big party. I mean, shouldn't we be respectful of what other people might think? Like, respectful of my older brother, respectful of the other servants who are here, respectful of people. Like, I did really mess up my life. But there's none of that with the Father throws a party. There's no weird looks across the table. Just joy. As I mentioned, the par- this parable is the last of a series of three about the lost um, sheep, the last coin, and then the lost son. And you see the same type of thing at the end of each parable. In 15.7, at the end of the lost sheep, says, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In verse 10, Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And now, the lost son is thrown a banquet. When his children return home, there is a celebration. That's how he feels about it. And his parties are extravagant. My, my grandmother was actually known for throwing extravagant um, parties or having extravagance in her gatherings. Uh, we just had Thanksgiving, and my fond memories of Thanksgiving are my grandmother. She wanted ever, she was an incredible um, pie baker like the best, and I will have words with anyone who says differently. So um, she, and she loved making pies for people. And if you've, any, any of you pie bakers in here? Like, they're not easy, right? Like you don't, it's not like you just whip some things up and throw it in the microwave and it's good. You know, it's not like, like it's, it can be challenging. Like the crust is challenging, the filling is challenging, like everything is challenging about um, baking a really good pie. And my grandma would labor over it. And her big thing was she wanted to make sure that everyone had their favorite pie at Thanksgiving. And so one Thanksgiving, no exaggeration, she brought 20 pies to Thanksgiving. One for every adult who was there. It was unreal. And I remember unloading them from her station wagon and be like, seriously, grandma, like where? They're pulling them out from underneath seats and like they're stacked on each other. She was holding like three while she's driving. Like, I don't know, I don't know how they're all fitting in there. But it was incredible. Every person got their favorite. Custard pie for my cousin, cherry pie for my uncle, raisin sour cream pie for my weird dad, and all the rest of them for me. Like, it was great. And she, and here's the other thing. As we went and got them and get a slice, she would watch us. It's borderline creepy. She'd, she'd just watch us with such joy. And she watched us eat them with such joy. She could hardly contain herself. And as she got older, she, there was one Thanksgiving she was unable to join us. It was Silas's um, first real Thanksgiving. And um, like first where he could actually eat Thanksgiving food. It doesn't count if you can't eat anything and you just stare at everybody else. But when he was able to eat everything, my grandmother, who could not come to Thanksgiving, baked some things and then asked, would, asked if we would record him eating his meal. 
which felt weird, but I did it because she's grandma. And I recorded him, set up a camera, just on Silas in his high chair. He's going to hate me for saying this, but he was little. Um, he was one, and he's just mowing down, just eating all the food or whatever. So I take it to my grandma, and I go to visit her, thinking we'll watch like 20 seconds of this. I just want to show her I honored her by uh, recording it. She watched the whole thing. 30 minutes <laughs> of watching a one-year-old like shove it in his face, like drop things, whatever. And she just sat there just with this look of joy on her face. Listen, I think that is a reflection of our God. He takes great joy in watching us enjoy his gifts. He doesn't want us holding back. He doesn't want us receiving these gifts of righteousness and being like, you know, but I really shouldn't have this and I feel kind of weird about this, whatever. He's like, no, eat, enjoy. It is good. We aren't holier when we kind of act in a reserved way in our celebration. We are to rejoice at a level that makes sense for the level of the gift that we receive. And his gifts are extravagant. As it is written, what no eye, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. He welcomes us in joy, like in the parable of the talents, the first two servants are greeted like this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. If we believed that, we would be the most joyful people in the world. But we're not always known for that. Why not? Well, because of the response of the older brother and how... That spirit is still alive in us. In verse 25, we see how the older brother reacts. It says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. My father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. See, the older brother, and he, probably hearing the recount of this story and what's happened, wouldn't see the father's running as a sign of love, but as a sign of shame, and it would be embarrassing. He doesn't see the robes placed on the younger brother as a gift or the robes that he wears as a son as a gift, but as his due for being the obedient son. He doesn't see the extravagant party as a family celebration where we all rejoice, but rather a slight against him. The older brother is saying, I've been here all along. And yes, this, these parables are about re representing the Jews as Jesus is declaring this to the Gentiles and saying, 
representing these Jews who are saying like, look, we've been your people and now you're just going to open things up to anybody? People who've never worshipped you? And these, this is in that spirit where Jesus would say, I came for those who are sick, not for those who are well. Or that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous who are in no need of repentance. He's not saying the 99 aren't in need of repentance. He's saying that people who think that they are declared righteous by their own works, there's no celebration over that. But over one sinner who repents and takes on the righteousness of Jesus, there is a massive eternal party. And so the older brother is saying, look, I've been here all along. The older brother, the issue and what's, what the enemy tries to get us with, and we tend to buy into at times, is that the issue is the older brother thought that his standing with the father was because of him and not the father. He felt entitled because he was the good son who had done everything right. And in the process, he misses the true gift. So see the contrast? The one son almost misses the gift because he thinks he's defined by who he is and what he has done, and what he has done is shameful. And so he could never receive the gift from the father. The other son is separated because he thinks he is defined by who he is and what he has done, and he's done all the right things, so he deserves the gifts of the father. And what is alike is that they are both separated from God and they both are going to miss the gift unless they receive his grace. What he was missing in that is he thought he had earned his sonship but he was missing something far better. What he was missing was that his father ran to him every day. He was present with him every day. What he was missing was that everything that the father had was his all along. What he was missing was that he had access to all the joy and the celebration of the younger son, but missed it because he was too busy earning his place. Frequently when I talk to people about God, it's rare that I run into someone who just doesn't believe he exists. There are definitely people and maybe you're sitting here and you put yourself in that category, but most people tend to get to a place where they believe there's something bigger. So the issue isn't, do I believe that something bigger exists? Do I believe that he is knowable and that he is good? Those are the bigger questions that people are often asking. And often the question of, is he good, comes back to their own life and saying, because, because he hasn't held up his end of the bargain. If he's there then there's no way he's good because look at my life. And what we want to say is we want to believe that God will reward us for being good. And we say, well, even though I don't know anything about him, I've been good. And when we don't feel like we've been properly rewarded or we feel like we've been cheated out of something or somebody else has been given something that we deserved, then we're angry. See it in all kinds of ways. I did everything right in dating, and my marriage is a mess. We were responsible in our prime working years, and then cancer ruined our retirement. I've been a good steward with my money, and I still don't have enough. And like the older brother, we think this is all completely unfair. 
And you know what? The older brother's not wrong. It is unfair. The fair thing would be for us to receive judgment for our rebellion against the kingdom that has produced so much pain and destruction in the world. That's the fair thing. I've said it before, and I don't say this flippantly at all, but when people ask, like, well, if there is a God and if he is good, then why do so many bad things happen to good people? What always pops up in my mind is I look around at my life and people around me, and I just think about even my own journey, and I think, I wonder how do so many good things happen to such an evil sinner? How is it that we're able to breathe and laugh and love people and be loved, regardless of what we believe about God, and to enjoy those things? And when those good gifts fail, or when we turn them into idols and they cause destruction, or when they break down because of the brokenness of the world, then we shake our fist at God rather than being thankful of all the incredible gifts that he is under no, under no obligation to give us. The response of the father isn't to call out the older son's like exaggeration. Like, I've never disobeyed a command. I mean, like, surely he can point out a few things. But instead, he says, son, you've always had me. All that is mine is yours. It isn't earned. It is given. And we live in response to that. And to live a life where we look at God and we say, God, how dare you do this to me? You didn't hold up your end of the bargain. It's foolishness. Because we would have to answer, especially if you believe the Bible, you'd have to answer the question of why did Jesus die? Because Paul says in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? saying, why would you worry about your inheritance? Paul's talking about this identity. Romans 8 is incredible. I encourage you to go home and read it and memorize it. But talking about our our identity and our inheritance, he says in, in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Like we serve this extravagant king and Paul's argument in Romans 8 is if, you, if the Spirit testifies, if, if you, the Spirit dwells in you, if you have been bought and, and redeemed by Jesus, then you belong to the Father and you are a son, you are a daughter. And if you are that, you are heirs. You are co-heirs with Christ. Talk about extravagant. We don't even get like a secondary inheritance. Like maybe you're in a family where you're like, okay, clearly there's four kids in my, in my family and I'm definitely obviously the worst. And so you might look at it and be like, I totally get if my brother gets more than me because, you know, he's just like, why not? And so we're looking at Jesus and God says, no, you're co-heirs. It's all yours. What? And so there would be this question of like, how can I possibly believe that's true? Like Paul, it just feels like you're going over the top. And Paul's argument is I can't possibly go over the top for what God has prepared for us. I can't possibly exaggerate it. And then as the evidence of it, he says, look, if he didn't withhold his own son from you, 
You're going to question whether he's going to give you all the rest of these things? Like, that's the argument. It's a pretty good argument. This is who he is. Extravagant God who pours out riches and blessings and mercy and kindnesses a million times over, new every morning to those who have rebelled against him and caused pain and destruction. And he says, it's not who you are anymore. You are mine. I have declared it so. And we live the rest of our lives walking in faithful obedience to that. And what it does to us is it changes. If we believe that this is who God is, this extravagant God whose riches are endless, then it changes our mentality and the way that we live. In the coming weeks, we're going to talk about that. How do we then live in response to that? Like, what does it look like to live with an abundance mentality rather than a scarcity mentality? Like, to understand that God's extravagant blessings are not limited and so other people receiving that blessing and, 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 and receiving the blessing of God is just cause for rejoicing because it's about him. It's not about them. We get to rejoice together. And this changes everything about how we live. If we really believe this about our God, if we really believe this is who he is and who he's declared us to be, if we really believe that we have received this robe of righteousness, then we wouldn't worry about um, whether, like, what, what our status is with God. We'd never feel cheated because we know the king of the universe loves us and is giving us every good gift. We would never worry because of how he has provided for us. We would never, we would live in a constant state of thanksgiving. We would live with this abundance mentality, an abundance of love. And so we would freely give it. As he has run to us, we would run to others. We'd live in an abundance of security in this identity of who God says we are. So we would live courageously and boldly out of that, knowing that we are his sons and daughters. So we have nothing to fear. You have an abundance of joy knowing that he celebrates the fact that we have come to him. And all of heaven rejoices and so we would rejoice with one another. So in the next three weeks, we will talk about how we live as children of this extravagant king. How it makes us extravagantly generous with our money, with our time, and with our worship so we can enter the joy of our master. Let's pray. Father, help us. God, remind us of these glorious truths. God, I pray that we would rejoice in this this morning. And Lord, if there are people here right now who have not experienced that joy, who have not returned home, God, I pray that this would be the time this morning. And God, we know your word says that all we have to do is turn to you, to turn from our old sinful ways, to repent and turn to you, to take on your life, to, to participate in your death and then in your resurrection and to be made new. And all we have to do is just say, Jesus, I'm yours. 
I repent. Father, I pray that we would be reminded that when that happens, we are declared your children. And the rest of our lives are not spent earning that or proving our worth, but rather living in extravagant love and security and joy as we pursue our identity that you have already declared for us. And as we walk in incredible, ever-increasing joy of abiding in you. Amen.